1: From Sugar23, I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up. Welcome to our first episode of Lit Up for 2023. We are kicking the year off with a very special conversation with my friend, the writer and restaurant guru, Taraja Morel. In 2011, she created the food and travel blog, The Lovage, and her writing has appeared everywhere from tea magazine to food and wine. She is also the author of Soul of New York, a guide to 30 exceptional experiences in New York. Now, she does know New York inside and out. She grew up there, and I was lucky enough to go to her beautiful Manhattan home to talk about her latest endeavour – The book she co-wrote with the late chef Fatima Ali that's called Savor, A Chef's Hunger for More. Now, I'm going to leave it to Taraja to explain the nuances and the complexities of this life altering experience she had with Fatima. And we are also going to talk about her own blossoming career in hospitality, her very favorite cookbooks and The Best Way to Roast a Chicken. I hope you enjoy this conversation. I could not be happier. I am sitting opposite such a talented writer in her exquisite, unique, wacky, fabulous apartment. I am with Taraja Morel. Thank you so much for
0: having me in your home. I'm so happy you're here, Angie, and at long last. Yeah, it's really nice to talk to you about the book and to see you.
1: Well, this book, we're going to talk a lot about another person, Fatima Ali. But we're also going to talk a lot about you (laughs) because your career and your life are so interesting and inspiring and your way to becoming a writer through food and your passion for aesthetics as well. But let's kind of locate everyone in the conversation first. Taraja has co-written this book called Savor, A Chef's Hunger and More. And it was written with Fatima Ali, an incredible Pakistani-born chef. And Taraja, first of all,
0: How did this project come to you? It's highly unusual. It is. It's such an unusual project. It it began in October 2018 when my agent, my literary agent, reached out to me and asked me if I'd ever heard of Fatima Ali. And I indeed had. The day before, I had read her second essay in Bon Appetit magazine, in which she announced that she had terminal cancer. In her first essay for Bon Appetit, she described being a chef with cancer and the complications of one's appetite fluctuating as a result of the medications and relying in part on gummies and marijuana to help her feel hunger again and the pleasures of, of re-establishing her appetite and what she was hungry for. And in the second essay, she said, that she was terminal and she thought she had a year to live and she announced that she wanted to spend her last year enjoying life to the fullest, traveling the world, going to the places on her bucket list to eat and experience going on safari. So this was fresh in my mind when my agent reached out to me and I immediately said, I would really like to be considered for this job, please put my name in the hat. And after some back and forth and some writing samples being submitted, indeed, I was selected by Fatima.
1: And this was to tell her story. Ultimately, she decided that she wanted to have a book where she could tell her story before she...
0: Well, to be honest, the book that I understood we were writing was a book about eating her way through her last year of her life. So it was a bucket list book. Um, I think it was something like A Thousand Things to Eat Before You Die was the premise so actually while i am sure her story would have come into it it was a very different book than the book that we're actually talking about today savor uh what wound up happening is that she didn't have her promised year and instead of meeting her or being told about uh a dinner in copenhagen or rome or wherever in the world she she was hoping to get to instead um I met her in Los Angeles at the hospital and sat with her for a week and talked to her about her life. So I didn't know if a book would come out of that, but I decided to stay and talk to her because it was what I could do for somebody who was having the rug pulled out from them in every way.
1: It's so incredible when you open this book to have you tell this story, your story of the way in to her life and just a reminder of life, isn't it, that nothing is ever what it seems or what you think it will be and the choice to sit with her as her family were around already, I'm sure, trying to process the suddenness of this, can you tell us a little about that week, how it started and how it ended?
0: I had prepared questions for her. Um, Perhaps I would have asked similar questions no matter what, but presumably over the course of many months instead of in this extremely finite period together, I was trying to understand the situation that I had walked into in real time as I arrived there. Um, her brother was speaking to a hospice worker, and there were clues like that to me that there wasn't going to be very much time. It was an extremely strange situation to walk into. I felt very guilty about taking her away from the people who had gathered, the many, many people who had flown from all the corners of the earth to be near her. I I didn't understand, frankly, why she would want to spend time with anyone she didn't know very well because her time was so precious. And I, of course, was scared because it's an immense responsibility to... Take something like this on, and I I wound up calling my mom, of course, and my my agent, and my agent said, you know, one day at a time, and get through this week, and and then we'll see. And um, on the third day that I was with Fatima, that was when I really understood, actually there is a book here and it has to happen. I recorded everything. I recorded her conversations that happened in front of me with her brother, which were extraordinary conversations with doctors. Um, I just observed everything I could. I journaled constantly on that trip when I wasn't with her because I I was overcome with emotions and myself. And uh, it's all all gone into this. It's all in there. Yeah.
1: What did she reveal on that third day that made you feel... That something had shifted in the story for you?
0: She started to allude to things that I didn't know yet, but I began to understand. I think on the third day, I asked her what her goals for this book would be. And she gave me a number of bullet points, essentially. And one of the most significant ones was if another little brown girl can read my book and accept herself and feel deserving of everything because that they they won't feel alone then this book is worth writing yeah. and i started to think what am what is there here that i haven't learned yet and then you know Without much prompting, Fatima revealed a great deal about her her history, some hard experiences in life and about herself and was very clear that she wanted these to be elements of the book in addition to her ambition and her hunger for life and hunger for more um, living. So then on the, our last day together, she was very clear with me that I would figure this out. She said, you will figure this out. You will figure out how to do this. And her confidence in me helped me, even though I didn't know how I would figure it out at the time. I returned to her saying that, listening to the tape of her saying that to me many times and in my head, of course, as well, um, in hard moments. So the book starts with,
1: well, a passage written from her mother's point of view. And I wasn't expecting to hear so much from her mum, who's also a very ambitious, complicated, loving, strong woman. Can you tell us a little about her story? It made me think a lot about families and how we have our own experience of something and we think it's just the way things are and I was treated this way or that way. And then if we're lucky, we can get someone else's point of view of the same family dynamic or the same situation. And this was a really illuminating part. So why was that critical as the storyteller you know, you crafted this narrative. How and why was that decision so important? And what did you learn about Farizé that inspired you?
0: Well, on... At the end of my first day in Los Angeles with Fatima, as I was leaving the hospital, I ran into her mother for the first time we'd not met before. And we embraced and she thanked me for being there. And she said, I hope we'll have time to talk. And I said, of course, I want to speak to you too. And internally, you know, I felt immediately a pang of of pain having said that because there would be nothing but time. And that was a brutal truth to encounter. And so after Fatima passed, um, indeed, Farizé and I spent a lot of time together filling in parts of Fatima's story that we had not, you know, established in our time together. But I also just felt it was essential to learn Farizé's story. And the more, of course, I got to talk to her, the more I realized that was true. I am indeed very interested in mother-daughter dynamics, family dynamics in general, but particularly mother-daughter. I'm very close to my own mother. Farizé was an enormous champion of her daughter, Fatima. And um, in general, regardless of whether we decide to follow in their footsteps or to do something, do you want to pause? There is, there is, <laughs> if you hear, oh. Speaking uh, of mother-daughter yeah, dynamics. Exactly.
1: Yeah. So Taraja's daughter has just woken from a nap. So this is what you're hearing, everyone. <laughs> we will resume in a second. Sorry. I think just start again from talking about her mom.
0: She is indeed a strong, independent, fierce woman in many ways. And she wanted her daughter to have a phenomenal education, every opportunity, and she saw to it that her daughter did. But I think the generational uh dichotomy of what Farise grew up in versus the the time that Fatima grew up is really essential to the story because Farizé's marriage was arranged. She'd never met her husband. You know, there was no connection apart from the family deciding that they should wed. And I think it is important to highlight how recent that was and how present that was in both of their lives, in Pharisees as a wife and in Fatima's as a daughter. There's also the context of
1: these women being born and coming of age in Lahore, in Pakistan, and the confines that were placed on women there in that society. Can you tell us about when Farazeh takes the family to Texas. And that really feels like a juncture in the book that is incredibly difficult, but an, such an empowering experience to leave a place where a divorced woman is gossiped about, outcast in a way, and then comes to America where that's quite normal and she's able to raise her kids in a school where, you know, people say, oh, my parents are divorced, it's, I have two dads, you know, whatever that. That must have been such a culture shock. But then once the family embraces those freedoms, there seemed like a real blossoming. And can you talk about that from both Fatima and Pharisee's perspective? And then, though, the sense of, I felt as a reader of, how are they going to go home and live kind of with all those freedoms curtailed?
0: Well, I think it's important to acknowledge that it is not that every marriage is arranged in Pakistan. Farise's own parents married for love. They fell in love instantly when they met. And Farizé always wanted to know why couldn't her path be similar to her own parents. And I also think it's very important to establish that while there were certain seeming freedoms associated with moving to the states, that the states are so far from perfect in many ways. And Mm. it's very important to acknowledge that. And the difficulty that well, the racism that they- Absolutely. Also experienced here in, yeah. in the United States, in Texas, where they moved for a couple of years to be with Farizé's family and so that she could educate herself. Uh, yeah, immediately they were the only brown faces pretty much in their community, um, in a very white community. And yet Farizé experienced um, a lot of support when she started going to school and from her teachers and interest in her because she wasn't like all the other people in her class.
1: And how was this transition when they then came back to Pakistan and what was the decision behind
0: that for them? Well, the decision was that Farazay's life was very much still in Pakistan. Her family, apart from the one sister that she had been with in Texas, and she wanted to create a career for herself in Pakistan in education, which is really telling, I think, of Farizé's character. She wanted to empower students and make them more confident. And she returned from Texas, you know, a divorcee in a community where there were very few, if any, perhaps none, no other people who were divorced. And that was a challenge for her. And I think there was a very significant vacillation between her independence and her confidence and her feeling of being her own master and the societal pressures that made her feel like she wasn't a full woman because she wasn't married. And I think all of this is essential to understand Fatima, I think, who was so fiercely independent and unafraid of being a single woman, Um, just, you know, adoring of her freedom. So I think Farizé's story and all of our stories, whether we, you know, resist the paths that our parents had for themselves or we embrace them, either way, they're relevant to our stories. So I think that's why it was so important to have that. And part of the reason that it's a story in voices is that my time with Fatima was so brief. And there was concern about whether there could possibly be enough from a week of conversations to create a whole book. And I felt it was very important that this be a female story. So her brother, who is extraordinary and immensely supportive of Fatima and devoted to her, he was an enormous resource for writing this book. But I felt it was important for the voices to be female.
1: Oh, I love that choice. Like you said, it just, the layers that it creates, and those ways that Fatima is both inspired by and then also pushed to do her own thing by the experience of her mother's life. And, you know, one of the parts, I think it's always so interesting to try and work out when an interest develops. And for Fatima, this obsession with food came from going to the incredibly evocative fragrant markets with her grandmother, but then also the experience of the moments she had with her father that felt very pivotal were cooking together and then, you know, being taken to fancy restaurants. You know, when you don't live with your dad and he comes to town, classic, you know, classic dad, move Mm -hmm. let's go to the fancy restaurant that's not really appropriate for children but that experience and Fatima and Mohammed wanting to impress their dad by tasting the sushi Mm. or being adventurous so informed this kind of developing curiosity for food and flavors tell us a little about that and how Fatima, I'm assuming, lit up, came alive when she talked about food?
0: Well, I think the way I interpreted these these stories, which were indeed very evocative, was that whether she understood it or not at the time, food equaled love. And whether that was the love of her grandmother nano who she looked up to immensely and adored or the love of her father who traveled and brought back interesting vinegars and flavors from other countries and that was where they felt this enormous bond was in the kitchen or or eventually in restaurants i think food and love were inextric- inextricably linked for fatima and they are for me too so that was something i very much understood And what began as, you know, these seeds in childhood eventually as Fatima grew older became very real tenants, I think, of her interests. And although she excelled in school and got perfect grades and could have probably studied anything, it was it was culinary that she chose and her mother supported her, which was a beautiful thing.
1: And then Fatima came to the States to study at the Culinary Institute
0: Tell us a little bit about that journey towards Top Chef. Fatima moved to the States to, to study culinary at actually at the Culinary Institute of America in Poughkeepsie, which happens to be an area in New York State, which I'm also very familiar with. There were several things that we were able to discuss, which I immediately understood just coincidentally and and that locational aspect and also the experience of being in culinary school are two things that I, I could immediately relate to. Fatima also realized while in culinary school, and especially after doing her externship, that there was no replacement for doing, for actually working in a kitchen and for going above and beyond and for learning everything. And I too shared some of those experiences. It all just made sense as we were talking. And I think that that was tremendously helpful in the situation of only having spent a week together but then having this mandate to write a book, knowing that we had these commonalities despite our age difference and our, our cultural differences. We had, I think, certain things that we could have as a creative shorthand. We, she said that she wanted to open the Pakistani version of Uncle Boon's. Uncle Boon's was a phenomenal Thai restaurant in Nolita. They were former clients, they're dear friends. I immediately understood what that meant to her. That meant that she wanted a place that was at once thoughtfully executed, but informal and a little bit raucous and fun and insanely good food. So those things helped. What I found with
1: this book, you know, when I decide to chat to someone on the podcast, I have my, you know, pencil out, ready to underline and take notes. And then with the best books, I find that I've gone 30 pages because I'm so in it that I haven't had that mental moment to be like, oh, take a note here, that's a good question. I was just so absorbed. So, yeah, it's an extraordinary book and you do such honor to her life.
0: Thank you so much for saying those things. Yeah,
1: it's it's beautiful. But now, so Taraja has such an interesting <laughs> background and you know, you alluded to your own experience at culinary school, but you consult to restaurants and hotels to conceptualize their food and beverage programs, you know, As you will all see on Instagram when we share images, Taraja has an aesthetic that's so vibrant. And so tell me a little about how food influenced your home life and how this trickled into the career paths you've taken.
0: Big question. <laughs> yeah. So we are sitting in the place that I grew up right now. it My father and his parents before him were in the wine business here in New York City. And I grew up in a household where meals and cooking were the most important part of a day and absolutely how love was expressed. So although that was an absolute, my essence. Um, it, I shied away from it at first, it never occurred to me to go into the family business. I wasn't cut out for it and I didn't want to do it. And then I was a an actor in my twenties, frankly, probably not sure what I should be doing and had some good things happen in that realm that made me think I was on the right track, but I wasn't, it was not my path. And then uh, I suffered a, a loss of my own, a very close person to me passed away at uh, very young. And eventually that turned me back to food. Something inside me was saying return to food. and But I wanted to learn about food, not as my mother had. She was self-taught. She taught herself to cook in order to create meals that were of the echelon of the wine my father was pouring. I wanted to learn by the book. I wanted that armor of education. And so I went to the French Culinary Institute and I took a four month class, which would have been the beginning of the full uh, education if, if I had chosen to continue. But I decided I did not want to be a chef. And I immediately started writing about food for myself. I started a little very heartfelt blog called The Lovage. It was 2011. Everyone had blogs. Then I very. Luckily, started getting some jobs writing professionally about food, but really it was that I saw food as a way in to talk about characters. And I think that I've tried to carve out, when I eventually became a more established professional writer, I've always been attracted to stories that are character driven. So whether that's a vintner or a farmer or a chef, it's the character that attracts me. and. The food is the vehicle to talk about that, or the wine, or the...
1: Where's a place that your work has taken you in the world that is very fond and like a place you conjure up when you think, oh, to be
0: back there in that moment? I've been so lucky. I mean, it took me a really long time, I think, to find my my path. And it's really only in the last seven or eight years that I think I've really felt I was on on my path. And in those years, I've gone and written stories about Franciacorta, which is a sparkling wine region in Italy, and I've gotten to you know, spend a week visiting vineyards and restaurants in the long duck to write an article for food and wine. I wrote for Relais Chateaux in-house magazine and got to visit some extraordinary properties. I wrote a story about Iñaki Asbatar, the sort of father of the neo-bistro in, in the Parisian culinary scene, and learned so much about that It really wet my appetite for moving to Paris myself, which I never wound up doing. One of my most favorite experiences was going game hunting with the chef James Lowe of Lyles in London and five other chefs and then experiencing what all of what those chefs together did with the game that we had hunted, uh, the wild game. I've gotten to do the most extraordinary things. And meet these characters you talk about. Yeah. It's the best. It's the best job in the world. It doesn't pay well, but it's the No, I know. I I feel that, and I, I felt this before I was writing professionally, if you're in the food and wine business, you're putting an emphasis inevitably on the pleasure of living. of of dining well of drinking well and and of great conversation yeah and of gathering at the table and so that kind of wealth that kind of experience and plentifulness and abundance in life to me is the most important kind what do you cook at home (laughs) what are a couple of of go-to's for you well, I mean, you're catching me at a moment where my social life is is fairly curtailed by being a, a relatively new mom, a mom to a, a one year old and change. But I'm like many people, there's nothing more comforting or satisfying than a roast chicken made at home. Um, Do you start it on the high heat? Are you a high heat chicken person? I am. Yeah, I okay. start on high heat and turn it down. Great just so you know me
1: too (laughs) I just just, I mean I don't know whether I discovered that technique in the pandemic my mom wasn't that wasn't the way she Mm. cooked a roast chicken and she had a great roast chicken but then once I started it on 425 Mm -hmm. and then would you know cover the little wings if I needed to the crispy skin is
0: so phenomenal oh yeah (laughs) My mother also believes in pouring chicken stock into the pan with the vegetables and stuff. So you wind up with this rich, wholesome broth at the end, which inevitably I add wine to and finish simmering on the stove and that's to serve with it. And it's 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 just heaven.
1: Yeah. And now you spend a lot of time upstate. Can you talk about your why
0: your work brings you there as well yes so during the pandemic i actually was forced out of this apartment because of a structural issue and i couldn't live here for six months and i was spending a fair amount of time upstate with my parents who live there and i started working with troutbeck which is an estate hotel in Amenia, new york in the hudson valley and um helping to articulate their food program and working closely with chef Gabe McMack in there. And I've, I've loved it. I've absolutely loved it. And I've become more and more ensconced in my role there. And I'm now uh, doing marketing and special culinary projects for the property at large. And I love the people I work with. So yeah, I get to curate guest chef series and have amazing people in the beverage industry come visit and help establish farm relationships. It's such a pleasure.
1: Okay, so we would be remiss not to find out about your favorite cookbooks Mm -hmm. or one or two that are just kind of staples in your home, whether they're the the dog-eared kind Or, you know, something you go for if you want to be a little experimental, you name it. Now, Taraja's looking up at her
0: shelf and her mind's, you know, ticking. Yeah, I really love the Prune cookbook, I have to say. I cook from it a lot. Prune being Gabrielle Hamilton's restaurant that's not currently open on First Street in Manhattan. I mean, Otto Langi is always amazing, of course. I see yeah. the Jelena one. You know, Jelena Jelena's I so there. fabulous.
1: Did you? I helped open that place. Really? I worked there for the first four years. What was your role? A server. Yeah, but that was my kind of food and wine awakening. Certainly, the learning about wine from that team, and we're still friends. They're, they're in New York, still trying to open the Bond yes. Street location, yes. which I think I, will be open we're soon. We're all
0: hoping. But no, what a yeah, the gelina is one of my favorites yeah. to cook from as well, actually. And then, you know, I'm, I'm really enjoying trying to teach myself to cook some Japanese food right now. And and then, of course, I just, you know, I rely heavily on things online too. Bon Appetit recipes I find really reliable.
1: Okay, my last question, what lights you up?
0: Well, my daughter. Yes. All yeah, she's she's joy incarnate. She is such a character. We could not have planned that. She knows everything. She's 16 months and doesn't miss a thing. That's brilliant. And she really is. She is a flame. And frankly, also my mother. I'm extremely close with my mother and seeing the joy transmitted between Viva and my mother and my dad. They have a very special bond. (laughs) Although my father and I have very often butted heads. Their bond is so charming and yeah. What a
1: pleasure it's been to talk to you. We could talk for hours. Yeah, we could keep yeah. going. We I mean, sure. barely
0: scratched the surface. But so, how do we follow you? Instagram is the best way. I don't really use other platforms, but my social media is just my name, at Taraja Morel, T A R A J I A M O R R E L L. Thank you. <laughs> yes, we did it. Yay. Thanks.
1: Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Olivia Allmeyer is the marketing and editorial consultant. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. Andre Radovsky wrote the theme music. See you in two weeks.